Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the Pulp.net, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines, for over 20 years, online at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event Podcast, John Locke, publisher of Off Trail Publications, discusses, born writing, the unparalleled career of Arthur J. Burks. The talk was recorded on August 17th. 2019, at Pulp Fest 2019, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. All right, born writing, is that ridiculous or what? Um, And yet, I was born with the desire to write. I said that in 1929, and to be fair, he also said, All I've ever wanted to be is a U.S. Marine, even though uh, he hadn't even heard of the Marines before he wandered into a recruiting office in uh, 1917. Uh, But as we'll find out, um, this quote is uh, quite a bit closer to the truth. Um, So who was he? Uh, I first became acquainted of him, as best I remember, through... uh, uh, a chapter of the book, uh, The Shutter Pulps, that was devoted to Burks's Weird Menace stories. Um, uh, then later in the 90s, when I started uh, digging into the writers' magazines, uh, he emerged as uh, two pulp writers who uh, wrote about his career over a period of 30 years. The other one was Thomas Thursday, the humorist. So between those two, we get a really great insight into what the life of a a pulp writer was like, something we we wouldn't have gotten otherwise. Uh, So here we see uh, him in 1926 uh, when he was a Marine Corps officer and just getting his pulp career going. Uh, In 1937 when he was one of the central uh, pulp writers uh, in Manhattan. Uh, 1947 uh, he's signing the book uh, I Die Daily, uh, by, uh, which was a cancer diary by his uh, second wife, Dune Martinson, who had uh, died. Uh, she'd been Richard uh, Martinson's uh, um, uh, wife. He was a, a noted uh, war uh, pulp writer. And then in 1973, that's very near the end of his life. and. Uh, a few covers with uh, Burks on them. He may have, may have had his name on hundreds of pulp covers, and I'm sure you've all <laughs> seen many of them. Uh, and for having stories featured on the cover art, there are probably dozens of those too. Okay, so he was a, uh, a very prolific uh, writer, as we all know. And uh, when you're at at his level of production, uh, the numbers become uh, as important as the content. Um, I hope you can read those numbers there. But we start from 1924 and we go through 1958. That's the period when all his uh, pulp stories uh, were written. I've broken them down into uh, natural phases. Uh, over here, uh, Weird Tales, which was his entry-level magazine. He quickly switched to Real Detective Tales. Uh, Fiction House in the late 20s, uh, he was a big name for them. 
Uh, that's when he really got his career going. And you notice a big drop off. Uh, the reason for that is where I'll end the presentation. We'll get the overall and then we'll walk through the chronology up to this point. Uh, his mercenary years. Uh, really a lot of his uh, uh, prose is pretty rocky in these years. Some of the stories uh, are quite good. Most of them are good enough. Um, but he was really writing for the money at that point. He was jamming stuff out uh, as fast as he could for a whole bunch of publishers. Uh, when uh, after Pearl Harbor, he went back into the Marine Corps and so his productivity uh, dropped off. Uh, the Marine Corps had been about 5,000 men at the turn of the century, spiked to 45,000 in World War I, dropped back down to about 20 to 30,000 in World War II. It spiked up to almost half a million men, and he was a training officer with huge responsibilities, uh, so he didn't have time to write. Um, also, in the last year of the war, he was dealing with Dune Martinson's death and was so busy with his, his war responsibilities, couldn't spend much time uh, with her. So it was a difficult time. Uh, after that, he went to the Amazon looking for a cure for cancer, if you can believe that, and uh, wrote a book about it. Um, then he made a return to the pulps in the late uh, 40s, but of course, the pulps were dying, and uh, he wasn't the same prolific writer uh, he had been. So altogether, we're looking at 700 plus appearances, appearances meaning uh, short stories, novelettes, serial parts, which is the easiest way to, to measure productivity. Uh, so uh, now I'm gonna show you one of my all-time favorite uh, pulp quotes from Burks, I can't plot a story, I think up a title and start with that. Then one word follows another, like a couple of drunks arguing, until I've reached the length the editor ordered. I can time it off exactly, and pulp writers can't have moods. It's like painting a wall. Um, uh, pretty cold. <laughs> uh, but that's where his head was at in the mercenary years. Uh, the years where we're most acquainted uh, with what he was doing. Okay, so let's look at the numbers uh, uh, in a different way. Uh, we're broken down here by publisher, genre, and magazine. Uh, these aren't complete listings, but just the, the tops of the lists. Uh, so we see surprisingly, but not to John DeWalt, that aviation was his uh, biggest genre. Uh, I would have guessed before I did the database that it was the, the second one, the crime and detective. Uh, I think a lot of people know him as a, as a uh, weird fiction writer, might have guessed uh, the science fiction and fantasy, but even if you add in the weird menace, it still doesn't uh, crack the top level. Uh, looking at publisher then in the upper left, uh, thrilling by a long shot, and that really reflects those mercenary years. Uh, thrilling was not going for quality, they were going for quantity. With him only caring about making the money, that was uh, a logical place for, for him to land. 
then by uh, magazine. Uh, thrillings to uh, air pulps uh, are near the top of the list, so we get a synergy there. A aviation, thrilling, and um, thrillings top two air pulps. Um, the third entry in publishers, uh, Street and Smith, uh, 80 stories, uh, and yet we don't see any Street and Smith pulps at the top of the list. You go down to Sports Story, Clues, Top Notch, that's about 34 stories. The other 50 uh, were scattered throughout Street and Smith uh, uh, pulps, uh, air trails, the feds, uh, back of the book stories in uh, The Shadow, uh, Nick Carter magazine, and so forth. So I have to apologize for this uh, because I know we're not fun facts people uh, here at uh, Pulp Fest, but this one could not be avoided. <laughs> But uh, so here he is, big time aviation writer, uh, famous with boys all over the land for this, uh, but Arthur J. Burks was afraid of heights. Uh, he hated to go up in planes. He did not even like to be near a window in a skyscraper. Um, so. <laughs> All right, now for another surprise. So we've looked at his, his pulp career, and one might assume that this would be all-consuming of one's life, 700-plus stories, writing all the time, cranking them out uh, like an assembly line. Uh, but the pulps were only the third priority in his writing career. Uh, from the get-go, he had wanted to be a literary author. That, that desire never left him. Uh, the pulps were really a stepping stone to getting to that place. Um, and we'll see, in my opinion, he did get to that place. Uh, and then along the way, he picked up the skill of being a ghostwriter. Um, he claimed to have written uh, 20 ghost-written books between the late 20s and the late 40s. Uh, I've identified about half of them. Um, I don't doubt him on that, but these were uh, professional quality books. And uh, those made him money too. Uh, the literary career didn't work out as well, but uh, now, uh, okay, now we have the, the overview of uh, what he was as a writer. Now I'm gonna walk through uh, the chronology uh, of his life. And one of the key questions, because he's such a prolific writer, is how did he get to be that thing? And you think there's a lot of those prolific writers, but how many of them uh, leave behind evidence of how they became that person? Because that's not, that's not a natural talent at all. Um, so there's a lot of Burks in this slide. Um, first of all, he wrote about his autobiography in many different places. Uh, he wrote three autobiographical books, two in 1932, one in 1934. Uh, these two are connected, that's why I put them on the same slide. We'll get to the, the third one in a bit. Um, he also 
He wrote about himself in, in letters, columns, in the back of pulps. Uh, you find original information on those little uh, biography blurbs on dust wrappers. Um, there's correspondence between different people. He wrote articles about himself. Lots and lots of stuff. Uh, I've seen uh, articles in fanzines uh, from the 40s and 50s with stuff on him. Uh, so collecting that information and kind of putting it together has been a real adventure. Um, but it does start to uh, form a coherent story. Uh, so first of all, oh, additionally, these are these autobiographical books. These are his attempt, finally, to have literary relevance. Uh, early 30s, that's why he was, he didn't care about his reputation in the pulps, he only cared about the money. And this was the stuff he really cared about, these, these type of books. So the first one, uh, Rivers into Wilderness by uh, Burke MacArthur. Uh, he claimed that Mohawk Press, who was only in business for two and a half years, uh, he claimed that Mohawk Press did not want to publish it under the name Arthur J. Burks, thereby helping to advertise the other 1932 book, which was from a different publisher. I don't really buy that. I, I think it's the more obvious explanation that with him trying to achieve something with this book, he did not want to have the baggage of a pulp writer attached to it. He wanted uh, an objective reaction to the book uh, uh, as an anonymous writer, as it were. Now, what is this book? Uh, ask yourself, uh, look back a long way. Could you write an autobiographical novel of your fourth year of life? Uh, the time from when you turn three to when you turn four, I don't think I could get an accurate paragraph out of, out of that year. But what you're looking at in Rivers uh, into Wilderness is a very skillful autobiographical novel about Burks's fourth year of life. How he did that, I don't know. We can speculate. Uh, but what the story is, is about his young parents, uh, Lura and Richard Burks. He gives them different names in the book. And their two sons, Arthur and little brother Charlie. And they are homesteading on a very severe piece of land in the middle of Washington State. And uh, having a rough go of it. And it's a brutal life, farming, you work, or you don't eat, period. The job has to get done. And it's also about the crisis in the family because the father is a ne'er-do-well and it's really the story of him finally abandoning the family at the end of the story. And we go over, uh, let me mention, uh, Burks was very ambitious always and so he planned for this to be a sequel of uh, a series of books. So Fruits of Increase, Thistles into Wheat, 
and uh, strange w women. I have no idea what that could possibly be about. Um, those never happened. Mohawk uh, went out of business, and I don't think the book actually did that well. But if we go on to uh, Here Are My People, that in essence is the nonfiction follow-up to Rivers into Wilderness. They, the two books dovetail uh, very tightly. In Rivers into Wilderness, the ending is the father abandoning the, the family. Uh, here are my people. Uh, the narration starts with Lura, a single mother, raising the two small boys. There's very little reference made to the events of Rivers into Wilderness. Um, Burks clearly hated his father. Uh, in fact, in Here Are My People, he won't even call him my father. He refers to him as Lura's husband. Uh, and he was known in the extended family, that is the mother's side of the family, uh, as the world's laziest man. Uh, totally the opposite uh, of Arthur. Um, so let's get to the question then. How did Arthur become a, a super producing pulp writer? And the answer is found in Rivers into Wilderness. I don't think that was Burks's purpose with the book, but having studied him as a pulp writer, that's what came through to me. Uh, his parents were very distinct. Uh, the father was a philanderer. He was having an affair with a woman in a nearby town. Uh, he would often uh, abandon the farm uh, for days at a time, leaving the responsibility of the farming, the raising of the boys uh, to Lura. And Arthur, as a three years old, did his damnedest to help his mother with the chores. He had instilled in him at a very early age this relentless work ethic that said you don't stop working until the job is done. You've got a problem to solve, you just keep going until it's finished. Now on the other hand, uh, the father, despite all his uh, unfavorable traits, was a lover of literature and fancied himself a writer. Um, that might be an unfavorable trade too, but that's debatable. <laughs> uh, and he instilled that in, in Arthur. And interestingly, Arthur was able to separate his love of literature from the hatred of the father. So that's the trait he, he took from his father. So if you graph those two traits, the relentless work ethic, the love of literature, you have the formula for a high-producing pulp writer. What remained to happen was him to grow up, learn something about writing, and for the pulps to evolve into the genre-specific uh, uh, fiction uh, we know it to be. And when those two things started to merge, then Arthur was on his path to being that super producer from the 30s uh, we all know about. Okay, so uh, on to the a little geography here. Um, you see rivers into wilderness is set on Moses uh, Cooley, which is this valley that runs up from the Columbia River. And a coulee in that part of the world is a valley with bluffs uh, on the rim. Um, 
this is about where the homestead was and these days it's great you can use google street view you can go down and check it out it looks like it hasn't changed in a hundred years um, so the father leaves and then they end up over here uh, near the town of waterville near where arthur was born where uh, the mother's extended family uh, lives and here am our here are my people is not focused on arthur he's just one of many characters it's really about that extended family uh, how they settled that part of the world uh, and also it was a, a phenomenally transformative time you had the introduction of automobiles automated farm equipment electricity telephone flight cinema it was a way more radical time of change than, than it is today and maybe any other time. Uh, so about 10 miles away, but a hard 10 because you had to ride a horse out of that valley and get over there. Uh, so one thing you might think is, okay, autobiographical novel, how can you accept that as uh, a, a true account of his life? And I've tried very hard to uh, falsify events in the book, either rule them in, verify them, or rule them out. And I've ruled in a bunch of stuff, and I haven't been able to rule out anything. You know, it's his life, it's the family, their ages, the geography, uh, the relationships of the extended family, their ages, backgrounds, everything. It's the same between the two books, only the names have been changed in, in the novel. Uh, but I do want to give one example of, uh, of uh, how the information is validated. And uh, anyone heard of Harry Tracy, uh, one of our great outlaws, not, as, not remembered as well today? He was the last living uh, member of the Butch uh, and Sundance Hole in the Wall game. He was the last living me uh, member in North America. In 1902, early in the year, Butch and Sundance had gone to Bolivia. Uh, Harry Tracy was locked up in the Oregon State Penitentiary. Uh, so he didn't know they had fled the country, but at any rate, he escaped the penitentiary in the middle of uh, 1902. Uh, led lawmen on a merry chase all throughout uh, southwest uh, uh, Washington. And on August the 1st, 1902, he went riding up Moses Cooley where the Burke's homestead is located. Um, and he was a quality uh, outlaw. Uh, along the way, he would query people, find out who was up the road, how many men there were, were there guns, etc. He would get intelligence on what was going on so he knew what to be prepared for. Um, so in that way, he found out about this Burke's family situation and he stopped at the homestead and uh, was met by uh, Lura Burks with uh, a shotgun. <laughs> and they had a little conversation and uh, she ended up uh, feeding him, for which he was very grateful. But it was a little perilous. Um, 
And then he said he would come back. And he did come back some hours later when Richard, the father, had returned. And he came back and read Richard the riot act about how he was not acting up to his responsibilities as a man and a husband and a father and so forth and uh, threatened him and really just scared the bejesus out of him uh, and then left and went on his way. And as it turned out, he got another 80 miles before he was uh, cornered in a wheat field and ended up taking his own life. Um, but it's, it's all true and that's a central event of Rivers into Wilderness is the day that Harry Tracy stopped by the Burke's homestead looking for food. Um, now if we look at, you might recognize this cover from Weird Tales, The Ghost of Steamboat Cooley. For my money, one of Burke's very best uh, uh, horror stories. If you haven't read it, I, I highly recommend it. Um, but what that story is, is Burke's uh, taking his childhood traumatic memories and turning them into this recurring nightmare. And what you see on the cover is Richard Burks, the violent guy we know, uh, Lura Burks, and in the story she has no tongue, so very symbolic. And then there's a visitor. Uh, in the story it's a World War I veteran with damaged lungs who's basically going to find a nice place for his life to end. Um, that's, that's Harry Tracy, essentially. There's also a teenage boy, which would be Burks in the story. Um, so very effective story and very painful if you know the place it comes from. And I sometimes wonder what Burks thought when this story, and he was selling stories to Farnsworth Wright as fast as, as Wright would take them, what he thought when it ended up being a cover illustration on newsstands across the country. There is his childhood trauma for all to see if anyone understood what it meant. So uh, the adventure of researching Burks. This is where he wrote the, uh, the true version of the Harry Tracy story. It's in a 1950 uh, issue of Ranch Romances, which I had a Dickens of a time getting hold of. Um, but it's essentially the same story as the version in Rivers into Wilderness, uh, just maybe more detail. And Rivers into Wilderness, it's a massage to fit the, uh, the narrative. Okay, so at the, when uh, Burks uh, in turn 19, World War I broke out, so he left. Uh, he left Washington not to return for over 20 years, and he uh, enlisted in the Marine Corps, and they sent him down to Mare Island in the Bay Area, and that was where recruits from the West Coast went first. And uh, he was a country Jake with a lot of other confused country Jakes. Uh, but Burks, uh, as a boy uh, um, living with his mother, 
was essentially living as an adult by the time he was 12 years old. He was a farmhand, he would go out and get jobs, he would work, he would go to school, uh, he would pay his own room and board wherever it was convenient. He was a very, very forthright person and he went down to Mare Island and in no time at all, they put him in charge of the other country boys. Uh, and you see here, Another ring adventure of the fighting acting jack. An acting jack is a provisional corporal, so a corporal for the duration of the war. Uh, he was promoted almost immediately. Uh, he loved boxing uh, as a fan. He got into fights as a kid, as an adult. He didn't box at all, he acted as a referee. So we see this is really the Burks figure here. Um, and you see down here, Drill master par excellence at Marine Corps Depot, Mare Island. Uh, then he got on a train with a lot of other soldiers, went to Quantico, and he never went to France, never went overseas. Uh, they turned him into a trainer. Uh, so I just guess he was too valuable in that role for them to throw him into battle. Uh, and he was never shy about uh, admitting that until the late 20s when he started writing a lot of uh, aviation and war fiction and the pulp readers, they liked their authors to be the real deal. He stopped talking about his war experience. Uh, so you won't see a lot of that after that. Uh, but the leadership qualities, it's no accident. We see him in the 30s when he finally went to New York when the American Fiction Guild was formed, uh, kind of a, a union for pulp writers, he was the first president. And it's so easy to see how he would have just stepped into that role and, and done a good job. He was a natural leader. Okay, so he got demobilized uh, at the end of the war in 1919. And so, of course, uh, he's going to work on his writing career and become the great writer that he always knew he could be. So, like a lot of other such people, he made the rookie mistake of going shooting straight for the top, the great American novel. And he produced the splendid half-cast. And he was working for the Department of Commerce in the Bureau of the Census on the 1920 census, doing the writing uh, on the side. And uh, this book, um, very smoothly written at the sentence level, easy to read through, very, very uh, fluid, uh, but he didn't quite get storytelling technique. So he knew you were supposed to use foreshadowing, but his foreshadowing would be of the nature some character left the scene and then the remaining characters would say, well, you know what's gonna happen next. He'll go to this place and he'll meet so-and-so and they'll get into a fight and he'll probably get wounded. And in the next few pages, exactly that would happen as if those other characters were able to predict the future. He does that over and over. It's like, okay. Uh, and then the title, The Splendid Half-Cast, it's really a, uh, a romance between a white woman and a uh, half-Indian uh, man and who is the splendid half-cast. 
And so it's set up in the classic romantic novel format where their prejudice will keep them apart. So you're going to have a series of obstacles. You're going to overcome those obstacles. And in the end, they're going to get together. They're going to be happy. But no, he set that up that way and then totally torpedoed the concept because he had in the middle of the story another couple with the identical situation, a white marrying a half Indian, and their child was then a quarter caste and was an idiot, thereby proving that you know, the white person and the half caste could never get together. And so having set that up, the remainder of the book is just the persistent frustration of them going on with their unhappy lives, knowing they could never be together, and it's not resolved at the end. Um, and really what all that's based on is the pseudoscience of the day, you know, is only a few decades past uh, Gregor Mendel and Darwin and theories about what their findings meant were going off in all oddball directions. Uh, but anyway, he, uh, it was published by the uh, fantastic Burton Publishing Company of Kansas City, Missouri, uh, which uh, unfortunately was a vanity press. Uh, he paid them 500 bucks to publish the book. It was like two months' salary for him uh, in those days. He had to hound them for years to get them to finally publish it. It didn't sell anything, but they sent him 10 copies of the book. Um, so he learned a lot of lessons, and he also decided he would never write Western or romance fiction, and he didn't. So in early 21, uh, the Marine Corps needed people, and they recalled him. They said, you want to come back as an officer? He was doing a desk job. He jumped at the chance, uh, ran across town, and got back into the Marines. And here is where he went, and here is the other autobiographical book from 32, Land of Checkerboard Families. The title refers to the fact that he went to the Dominican Republic and was struck by the differing racial tones on the skin of all, of all different families. You know, dark skin, light skin, everything in, in between. And of course, this is the author of Splendid Half-Cast, so that struck him, became the title of the book later. And because he was super ambitious, he planned multiple sequels with the same publisher. They never happened. Uh, but anyway, the Dominican Republic was part of the Banana Wars. Uh, Spanish-American War put the uh, US on the world stage. It was a two-ocean war with Cuba and the Philippines. And then we opened the Panama Canal, which was critical to moving ships back and forth. It became a primary concern of uh, foreign policy. So we had all these skirmishes, uh, small wars as they're sometimes called, in the Caribbean and Central America, all designed to keep foreign powers out of these countries and protect the canal. And so he went to the Dominican Republic for two and a half years had three main jobs. Uh, his first one was a judicial officer. This was down in Barahona. Um, he was running a jail at the age of 23, being the main 
uh, judge for the Marine Corps. They had a shortage of people, so young officers got jobs they were not qualified for. Uh, the second job, mapping the interior. You see all those road numbers. None of those existed when he was there. Uh, he would go into the interior of the country on, on trails and uh, would encounter people who had never seen a white person before. So they were creating maps in the event of uh, future development of the country. Finally, he was doing espionage in the capital city of Santo Domingo. And he also referred to the country as Santo Domingo, which was common at that time. Uh, but espionage uh, was related to the possibility of revolutions, which always start with gun smuggling. So he was in the job of gathering intelligence and busting stuff like that up. Uh, three highly responsible jobs uh, that were also very damaging to his health and in some cases literally life-threatening. But at the same time he was doing that, he had gotten married at Mare Island. His second, his wife was there, his second and third of four children were born in the Dominican Republic. And he was working on his writing career, of course. He was writing at night, sending stuff back to the US. It was getting published. It was all nickel and dime stuff in juvenile magazines. And this went on, and he knew he wasn't getting anywhere. So uh, here's some examples. He would always take his life experiences and plow them into the, the pulp stories. Uh, Ghosts of the Deep, uh, you see a Wolf Larsen character there on the, on the deck. Uh, he's smuggling Haitians into the Dominican Republic, illegal labor. Um, and that was an issue Burks was involved in in his job at Barahona. Uh, so in this story, the ship has a lot of uh, Haitian laborers uh, under decks, and it gets, the ship gets caught in a typhoon or something. It sinks. The Haitians have no way of escaping, so they are the ghosts of the deep. Uh, another thing the Marine Corps did was chasing bad guys. So here we see with lead and steel, lead for the bullets, steel for the character, uh, two leathernecks on the trail of the renegade of the Badlands. So chasing down bad guys in the uh, jungles of the Dominican Republic. Okay, now his legacy, ironically, it seems that his main legacy is on stuff he wrote very early on for Weird Tales. He came back uh, to the U.S. Uh, uh, he arrived in San Diego on March 20th of 1924. They gave him five weeks off because he was such a physical wreck. So he took the time and used it to develop uh, his writing skills. He had uh, joined the um, uh, Palmer Institute of Authorship uh, correspondence course. They were located in Hollywood. He went up to visit them. Uh, he had all this material he had been compiling in the Dominican Republic. When he was in charge of the jail, he would go down into the cells, speak to the Haitians, hear their life stories, uh, write down notes, uh, talk to them about voodoo, you name it. He was ready to write strange stories about uh, Haitians and their habits. And uh, the Palmer Institute was able to set him straight on a number of things. 
maybe clean out those uh, backward storytelling notions he exhibited in uh, Splendid Half Cast, and he immediately started selling stories to Farnsworth Wright. Of course, we put selling in quotation marks because he wasn't getting money for them until <coughs> uh, they were published, and he soon figured that out and switched to uh, real detective tales. Um, so a lot of people, I've seen many biographical treatments of Burks. Everyone says that he had been in Haiti. He never served in Haiti. You know, it was all from the people in the jail. He drove across Haiti in his last week in the country just to get to Port-au-Prince to leave and come back to San Diego. But as far as him, if he ever crossed the, uh, the boundary into Haiti and saw voodoo rituals or whatever, he never spoke about it because that would have been illegal. But I don't know whether he did that. All right, um, time for a new character to enter the scene. Brigadier General Smedley Darlington Butler, a true-to-life pulp hero. Uh, when he was uh, promoted to Brigadier General, he was the youngest to ever achieve that rank in history, and so forth through the ranks. He got just short of becoming Commandant of the Marine Corps, but what an amazing life he had. Uh, he lied about his age in 1898 to be in the Spanish-American War, uh, he was only 16, he went in, he became an officer, probably because his father was a congressman. Uh, missed action there, but went to China for the Boxer Rebellion in 1900. Was shot through the thigh and walked miles to a hospital to, to, to get some help. Uh, he was involved in many of the Banana Wars. Um, in the early 20s, he was in charge of the Quantico base and he was very good at promoting the Marine Corps. So you see him there with Sergeant Major Jiggs. That was Butler after he had made the Bulldog the, uh, the mascot of the Marine Corps, which it still is. Uh, he also promoted uh, a football team called the, um, uh, the Quantico Marines. Uh, they were a very good team. They went 38-2-2 two two against Annapolis and West Point when those were two good teams. Uh, so famous for his uh, uh, promotional abilities. Uh, in 24 uh, and 25, he uh, left the Marine Corps on loan, as it were, for two years and became director of public safety in Philadelphia, his hometown. He was a rackets buster. They said, you know, these prohibition problems are out of control. Who can solve any problem? Smedley Darlington Butler. They sent him there, and of course he couldn't. Um, after that, uh, where did he go next? San Diego, uh, which also it may shock you to, to hear that when prohibition was enacted as a law, servicemen did not stop drinking. Uh, so the San Diego base had bootlegging and the rest of it, <laughs> just like our cities, and so that was part of his job. He also, of course, met, met the budding author, Arthur J. Burks, and uh, Burks became his aide-de-camp, that is, the officer in charge of uh, making sure the CO's orders got carried out. But what Burks also did was hustle him on a novel 
and of course was going to be a series of novels, but only one got published. Uh, fictionalizations of the heroic aspects of Butler's life, and he had been in so many crazy things that his uh, his life was worthy of that. And the public knew about him, but they didn't know all the detail yet of uh, uh, of his life. Um, so Burks wrote this book in three weeks. It's a very well written book. Um, and uh, it's interesting whenever mainstream historians are forced to dip a toe into the world of the pulps, they typically get things wrong. Uh, in this case, uh, uh, Butler's biographers uh, look at this book, Walter Garvin in Mexico, and they assume that was Butler pushing his promotional uh, ventures into new arenas. Uh, no, it was just the opposite. Uh, Burks was driving the bus. Uh, he was pushing the book project. Um, uh, and you can see why it happened if you look at the two people. Burks and Butler had a lot in common. Uh, ne neither had education past high school. Both were from prominent families. Uh, they were self-made men, problem solvers, had gone out in the world and done things. Uh, interested in athletics, they probably hit it off real well. Um, the book itself is about uh, fictionalization of when Butler went into Mexico undercover in uh, 1914. Uh, we were contemplating invading the country as one of the banana wars and wisely didn't do it. Um, but he went in to do reconnaissance on their armaments for which he won uh, the Congressional Medal of Honor. It was the first year that officers were eligible to get the award and they gave it to Butler. Uh, he was very much men first, officers second, uh, so he tried to return the, war, the award. They wouldn't take it back and they punished him by giving him uh, the award for 1915 for taking a fort in uh, Haiti. Uh, so, yeah, quite a dynamic character. Um, but as to this book, uh, Butler undermined uh, Burks's ambitions when he gave it to a publisher friend of his in Philadelphia for free. And you know that's not what Burks wanted because he was driven to create that professional writing career. Um, uh, later on, uh, Lowell Thomas uh, wrote uh, Butler's biography, which we see here, based on his nickname, Old Gimlet Eye. That could have been Burks writing that book, um, but we'll see later why that didn't happen. Um, so, uh, didn't cause any bad blood between them. Uh, they remain not close friends, but I'd say warm acquaintances. Uh, here's something from Thrilling Adventures in 34. It was a two-part true story version of Butler's career after Butler had retired. And that would be him on the left leading the men into battle. That's probably meant to be from the Boxer Rebellion. Okay, so uh, we won't spend much time on Burks's ghostwriting career. Um, uh, except to say that the importance of Walter Garvin in Mexico was that it established Burks as a ghostwriter. 
technically not a ghost-written book because it's got his name on the cover, but it proved he could take someone else's material and quickly turn it into a commercial property, which he did over and over uh, whenever he could get those deals. Um, uh, he would have verbal agreements with the authors. They would split the money 50-50. Uh, the publishers of the books, in most cases, would not know that they were ghostwritten, so there's nothing in the contracts. Perilous situation for Burks, which sometimes came back to bite him, but also, for our purposes as researchers, very little paper trail. Uh, but here is a case where I believe I was able to identify one of his ghostwritten books. Um, you know who Orland Tremaine is, a big Street and Smith editor, uh, edited Astounding before Campbell, uh, was forced out of Street and Smith in, in uh, 38 in a management shakeup. In 39, he started his own publishing company. The very first book was by one of his old writer clients, uh, Arthur J. Burks. It was called Who Do You Think You Are? And it was uh, kind of a vague book based on uh, memories being transmitted uh, through family lines. Not very convincing to me anyway. Um, their second book was uh, this thing, Trujillo, and who was Trujillo? He was the uh, president of the Dominican Republic. Why would Orlin Tremaine be publishing this? It had to be the Burke's connection. And there's uh, no uh, credit given to Burks with uh, in the book, but we do get these little clues in the uh, bibliography. Uh, the author, and that's her only published work that I could find, she lists Burks' checkerboard families. Okay, that doesn't prove anything, but we get down here military maps of the Dominican Republic, 1923 to 24. That's what Burks was working on during his second job in the DR. Uh, and then, a handbook of the Dominican Republic, that was the last thing Burks worked on when he was there. It was a handbook for future American military coming to the country, uh, which didn't end up happening. We pulled them all out in 1924. Both of these things unpublished. Why would they be in this book available to this reader unless this was a Burke's ghostwriting job? So who knew? Um, now we move on to uh, 1927. Uh, some of you, uh, most of you maybe have seen The Sand Pebbles or read the book. It's set in 1926. It's about a fracturing situation in, in China. Westerners had been there for many years. The locals were starting to get upset with it. Uh, that story ended with uh, Chinese um, attacking uh, some uh, missionaries and uh, commercial people in China. Uh, well, what actually happened in 27 was there were attacks like this that caused us to send over a large group of Marines, uh, about 5,000, I think, and uh, Butler was put in charge. And uh, he didn't take Burks with him, uh, saying that he was too fat. Uh, Burks, <laughs> spending all evening at the typewriter, had been gaining weight. Um, so anyway, but Burks went over a couple months later 
And uh, this is from an article uh, Butler had ghost written uh, in 1929 after he'd returned to the US. Note they call them hard-boiled Butler. That didn't refer to detectives in those days. Hard-boiled just meant tough. He had it ghost written. He, he liked to get things into print. He hated to write. He really hated to write. Uh, and it's called The Marines Who Wouldn't Fight because Butler, despite all his martial activity and all the violent actions he'd been in, by the time he got to China, he was interested in diplomacy. And you had a situation with warlord armies and a lot of competing factions, a multi-part civil war. Uh, Butler was able to go in there, quiet the situations, do things that prevented these, these warring factions from encountering each other. Uh, he used aviation a lot for reconnaissance to find out where these armies were, but turned into a very quiet situation. And as a result, it's not really famous for that reason. Uh, but a great thing for uh, Burks's writing career was with it being fairly peaceful, Butler gave him the latitude to travel the country, talk to people, gather story information, the same he had in the, uh, in the jails in the Dominican Republic. Um, and uh, at the end of the year, uh, Burks resigned his commission and was back in the US in early 28 and ready to put all this knowledge of China into action. Uh, so here we go, Fiction House, uh, Yellow Shadows, that's good in pulpy. Uh, you see the last line in the, the blurb told by an ex-Leatherneck lieutenant back from active service on the China coast. Uh, here's another one, Ghost Treasure, uh, set in the uh, Forbidden City. Um, involves looting of relic, relics and things and a good action story. Uh, actually, when Burks was there, the Forbidden City was a tourist attraction. Anyone could go in if they bought a ticket and he knew a local who gave him a tour of the Forbidden City. And, and part of the looting aspect may get back to when Butler had been in the Boxer Rebellion he and fellow soldiers, this was after he had um, gotten past the leg wound, uh, had penetrated all the way to the imperial city and they did loot uh, antiquities, uh, which he was embarrassed about later. Uh, so that all feeds in. Um, Shanghai Alley's also in a fiction house magazine. The Marines first went to Shanghai and then Butler determined that they really needed to be further north where action was most likely to occur. Uh, so they went up to Tientsin, which is 90 miles down the river from uh, Peking. But you know uh, Burks was in Shanghai scribbling notes and uh, getting ready for his professional career. Okay, another Shanghai story, good and pulpy in that caption, which I won't read out. Uh, and this is interesting over here, soldier stories. Um, uh, 1929 magazine, Fiction House, lasted four issues. Um, Butler at this time was back from China. He had spent two years, whereas Burks only spent one. And Burks was pushing him really hard to write his life story. 
and of course Butler was struggling with it. And, but he also needed the money. Uh, big time famous Marine Corps general, he had kids in college, he was having a hard time paying the bills, he really could have used the money. And he and Burks went back and forth. Burks did not want to write the book, he could have, but he was making too much money with Fiction House. He didn't want to take time off. And you wonder a little whether the double cross with the Walter Garvin in Mexico didn't enter into that a little bit. Maybe uh, Burks didn't quite trust Butler as a writing collaborator. Uh, but anyway, he didn't write the biography. Uh, he did want to write uh, true stories. He wanted to ghost true stories that would have uh, Butler's uh, byline on it uh, based on Butler's experience in different places. That didn't happen either, but what did happen was Butler would feed him his memories of different events and uh, Burks wrote them up as uh, fictionalized versions. So what we have here is Yellow Guns, When the Yankees Stormed the Dragon Gate. Uh, so that's one of the, there's actually three nested walls around uh, Peking, I'm not sure which one that is, uh, but that would be Butler there. Uh, so it's a big time military adventure story set in 1900. Um, Butler's name is not in him, not in it. He, he calls him uh, Jim King, the half pint Marine, uh, which sounds a little insulting, but uh, in actuality, uh, Butler was 5'7", 140 pounds. Um, so I, whether he was offended in, about that, who knows. But uh, Burks would dutifully send Butler half the money. Um, they remain warm acquaintances after that. Uh, they, this only lasted four issues. Three had uh, Burke stories. They were all based on uh, Butler material. Okay, finally, uh, Burks was making a lot of money from Fiction House. They had a, a, an agreement with him, not a written contract, when he returned from China. They would publish everything he could write, and he, had, he was making $1,000 a month in 1928 uh, from Fiction House. He was doing even better in 29. Uh, he had one month that went up to $2,167. So big money, he was really raking it in. He had that pulp career going. This is the point at which his relentless work ethic and the pulps had merged and created the perfect platform for him. Uh, but the party came to an end uh, when he told another writer, you know, you need to diversify in this business because you never know what's gonna happen. You know, editors change, fortunes change, whatever, magazines uh, fold, you need to diversify. The writer reported it, that story with Burke's name attached to Jack Byrne, the managing editor of, editor of Fiction House, who blackballed him on the spot. He stopped accepting any Burke stories, didn't tell him anything, just started returning them. And uh, Burke started getting suspicious uh, so he wrote a story, 
and sent it in under a friend's name and it got accepted. And he said, okay, bad news here. <laughs> Remember that big dip in the curve? That's what happened. As soon as Fiction House had run out the stories they paid for, uh, Burks's uh, gravy train had stopped. Um, and this is really what sets him up for those mercenary years in the 1930s. Okay, I want to move up. I want to be a literary writer. I'll just write pulp as fast as I can, take the money, use that as a platform, write rivers into wilderness, here are my people, and so forth. And uh, um, that's where we end up. And uh, that is the end of the presentation. <laughs> Big question, did I run over? Okay, three minutes, that's not too bad. Uh, do we have time for any questions, Mike? Maybe one. Maybe one? Question. Okay. The question is, why did Byron get so upset about that comment? I attribute it to his youth. <laughs> Burks was an older man by a bit. I don't know, really I don't know. And Burks actually, he came back into Fiction House almost immediately after Byrne leaving the company. That was in about 1936. And then Burke starts appearing in Fiction House mags again. Who was the other writer in Archon? Do not know who that was. Maybe I'll find out one day, but I don't know. That might not really Yeah, it could, yeah. Yeah. Um, in the chart you showed it, so, so basically, uh, late 40s, it hits zero for like a number of years, and then like pops up to like one in 1957. Yeah. So is there like, you know, okay, about 55, like, yeah, I saw it for like two years there, and then, and then just like a quick one, like, anything about that? Is that what he did? He, just... um, he, he, he returned to Weird Tales after really, he'd only been in Weird Tales twice in the 30s. Uh, with new material, uh, but he returned to them. He had quite a number of stories with them in that period, uh, wrote some science fiction, some more thrilling detective stuff. Uh, in the 50s, though, he started appearing in the, the men's adventure magazines, uh, and also his life had gone off in a spiritual direction, which didn't have time to go into here. So I think by this time, uh, he was done with fiction. He was on to bigger well, things right. in his mind. Because there's that zero, and then like one, like in '57. So like. Yeah, I, I don't mean, remember what that story was. Was it, like, was it like someone buying some old thing, or? It, 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 yeah, or yeah, it could have been. I, I don't recall what that was. Yeah. All right. What year was he born again? Uh, 1898. Anything else? All right, well, thank you for your attention. This has been a blast. Be sure to hear me. You've been listening to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines, for over 20 years. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps. The Pulp Event Podcast is copyright 2019.